This jar of chemicals was the reality and mission of Professor Hawkline's life work. The chemicals were what he had placed his faith and energy in before he disappeared. It was now being completed by his two beautiful daughters who lay in bedrooms upstairs with two professional killers, and his daughters were wondering why they had gone off making love to these men, while the freshly dead body of their beloved giant butler lay ignored, unattended, and not even covered up on the front hall floor. This is the Pink Smoke Podcast. We are here to talk about a book. We being John Cribbs and Chris Funderburg, the host of the podcast. How you doing today, Chris? I'm doing well. How are you, John? Let's what's why so much preamble? This is we were saying before we went to record. This is like our most anticipated guest we've ever had. We've been planning for like years trying to get him on. Why are well, we even talking to us? Good point. We should dive right into it. Mr. David Lambert, how you doing today, sir? I am doing great. I am doing great. How about yourself? Great, because you're here, man. This is exciting. Uh, You know, obviously, we've all been pals on social media. We haven't gotten a chance to have you on the show yet. Uh, And we've kind of gone back and forth on Twitter about all sorts of things, uh, historical and literary. And so I knew I wanted to have you on here to talk about, you know, a period set book. The only question was what we were going to do. And since every October we do a horror themed book, we kind of decided, well, let's do a little combo of the Western and horror with uh, Richard Richard Brodigan's The Hawkline Monster, which is a book I know that you were familiar with. But uh, you're not a big Richard Brodigan fan per se. Did you come to this book just because you read a lot of Western literature? Yeah, uh, I... I mean, I'm a fan of Richard Brodigan, but I'm not an expert. I've only read two of his books, this one, and then what is the, so the wind can't blow it all away or something like that. The one where it's like a memoir, sort of, it's sort of based on his life, but it's uh, whatever. Um, This is actually, The Hawkline Monster is something that, it's one of the first Western novels I ever read. Uh, I think (laughs) I'd read before, I think I'd read Blood Meridian and Shane. (laughs) <laughs> and just to give the listener some context, uh, Mr. Lambert knows more about Westerns than any person I have ever encountered knows about anything. You you are knowledgeable in a way about Westerns that uh, uh, I am, I am uh, not modest about my own level of knowledge of everything in the world that I am genuinely... Um, Anytime you do a thread or talk about the Western genre, it is genuinely stunning how detailed and knowledgeable you are. So uh, that is to just contextualize why we're having you on here and why we're having you uh, talk about this stuff and why it would be interesting to us to talk to you about Westerns. Because holy shit, like no, just nobody can compare to you. I know no one likes to hear that kind of thing to their face, but uh, this is this is the reason. So sorry to uh, to interrupt your flow of of this was the one of the first gothic westerns you or first westerns at all you had read yeah yeah i mean this was one that and, and thank you for that uh I, um but uh yeah th- this one was I, i'm not even sure why i think way back in the days of the imdb message boards yeah someone had, had mentioned this book and i think i read like the first few pages like on google books or something the part where they're in hawaii and it was cheap enough, and I was like, oh, "I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just buy that." And so it is like the third, probably about the third Western novel I ever read on my own uh, volition. And uh, I'm a huge fan of it. I'm a huge fan of the first section, the, the the latter half when they actually get to the 
the Hawkline mansion and all that is not, I still like that aspect, but those sections of the book, but that's not my favorite section. Probably obviously why, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I was just taken with it, especially the first, those first chapters, how weird it was and the, the humor of it. It was just, and the, the prose style, which is very conversational in a way. Uh, And so, yeah, the, the first, and I think I've told Cribs like on Twitter before, like I can call you Cribs, right? That's okay. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, that it does. It's that that the the first chapters are amongst my favorite, like writing in a Western novel, just because it's so it's so unique and strange and funny, and maybe because it was so early on in me, like getting into westerns, it might have. You know, it might have, uh, you know, uh, what would you Influence say? Like my your mind shape on what you like in Westerns. Yeah, yeah, in a certain way. But, you know, when people actually read it, they might be surprised because it's definitely not, <laughs> definitely not the uh, type of classical Western, you know. Yeah, so. it's not. That's obviously the reason that you put it kind of on your, you know, honorable mentions, not in your top 10 Western novel list that you published a while back. But it's interesting because, like I said, we're doing this like as a, a a horror book, you know, for October. But really, the reason we want you on is not to discuss the horror necessarily. Uh, but what we'll, once we get into it, we'll kind of discuss how it transitions from being kind of a more classically set period piece with like some interesting weird quirks and eccentricities, and then kind of gets into more of a surreal, strange thing. But before we get into it, let us let us share our aperitifs a work of art that we think that people should engage with before they uh, read Richard Brodigan's The Hawkland Monster. Chris, you want to start us off with uh, something? No, I would I would prefer not to be the one to, to start off with this. Can you go first? I'll go first. Uh, so, um, so I've already, yeah, we've already discussed like the weird kind of uh, twist this book takes and sort of the meshing, the kind of blending of genres that it uh, does with the, the Gothic and the, the Western. Uh, for me, uh, Another example of a book that does that is The Beetle Leg by John Hawks, which I'm a huge fan of. A lot of people know John Hawks for his books, The Lime Twig or The Blood Oranges. Um, And Beetle Leg does not get brought up a lot, but I think it's one of his best personally. Uh, It's a a weird one to have to talk about and encapsulate in any way because it is kind of proudly plotless and the characters don't behave the way normal characters would. Uh, The whole thing is uh, centered around a, uh, a southwestern irrigation dam that was erected 10 years before the book starts and uh, which kind of effectively destroys the grazing lands and um, the entire valley kind of becomes just a bad lands at this point. Everything is just decaying and the dam itself is slowly decaying and kind of the seismographs show it as uh, he's described as rotting at the uh, at the uh, a beetle's leg every few anniversaries. So this thing is slowly uh, falling apart and a man who had died in the building of the dam, his body is described as being inside the dam, moving slowly, even in death as this thing is slowly decaying and falling apart. That's sort of what we have to deal with here. You know, uh, something that kind of skips from one, you know, segment to another without it really being necessarily connected. There is a bit with a motorcycle king called the red devils, which kind of comes down to like a, a Virginian parody, I think more than anything where it's, you know, the, they're getting a posse together to get rid of the red devils, but their crime seems to be that they resemble living human beings and not miserable people wasting away in this uh, this decaying land. 
it's just it's it's a weird weird intensely weird prose uh i've heard it uh, compared to windswept fiction a la blood meridian that kind of thing i would be shocked to hear mccarthy is not familiar with this book when he wrote uh, that novel uh it has a very similar kind of tone to that but i love i love experimental fiction like that and that's sort of the thing that gets me into the hawkland monster this blending of genres the western the gothic swished together into a surreal slushy i love that kind of thing so the beetle egg by john hawks from 1951 is what i recommend you read before the hawkland monster david do you have a recommendation uh, about reading before the hug line? I don't mean, I don't know what you could read. I, I didn't know it was something to prepare you to read it, like to get you in the right mind state, especially since, like I said, it was one of the first Westerns I ever read. So I don't even know. <laughs> well, it can be, uh, any, it doesn't need to be a book. It could be a piece of music, put on this piece of music to listen to while you read it, you know, a well, piece it, that it reminds you of. A film. When I did, when I, when I did reread it this uh, past time, I got really high at work and I put on, the world of Harry Parch, the yeah. album. Yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, that. I don't know if you should do that before, but it might it might uh, enhance your reading experience. You know, if you're high at work. Uh, uh, I would say I don't know if you should read it before, but something that came out a few years before and is also from a kind of offbeat writer who was a you know poet slash novelist would be. Uh, uh 1970s uh the collected works of billy the kid by michael and yeah. Dante. i don't know how to say his name i'm just gonna see was <laughs> that yeah um, I think just call him the english patient guy yeah yeah well uh he's the collected works of billy the kid guy for me he's not the english <laughs> guy. um but basically so this is uh he, he, what he's like sri lankan or something right but he came from canada born in canada but he's like sri lankan michael and Dante. and he wrote this sort of prose poetry book uh about billy the kid um and uh it's yeah it's super it's it's, it's very strange it's got a lot of weird humor like the hawkline monster um to me i think that on michael and Dace kind of his he i uh the collector works of billy the kid i think is overall a better work than the hawkline monster it's more consistent i think and i think uh um but i i anyone anyone who likes poetry anyone interested in the old west or anything like that I, i'd recommend checking out the collective works of billy the kid any of you guys ever read it no i haven't i you recommended you mentioned it to me not too long ago or on or on twitter somebody it came to my attention fairly recently and i thought oh i should look at that because i think of andange only as being like the English patient guy and how like his career had such a weird arc where for there was like a year where he was the most important literary figure in the world. And then everyone forgot about him just as quickly. It was a really like high ascendancy and, and fall down. I'm sure he's still very, very important, but he was one of those names that there was like one year that during the Oscar campaigning where he got treated like the most important author in the world. And I was thinking, I really don't know anything about him except for the English patient. Uh, so I should I should read these these things you were recommending. I, I never got through the novel The English Patient, and I've never seen the movie. So, uh, but uh, from I mean, you know, from kind of its place in pop culture, what but Seinfeld, right? Didn't have a whole episode about how they <laughs> everyone yeah. was pretending to like that movie or something. 
Um, it's unfortunate because if you read the collective works of Billy the Kid, it's so weird and so strange, and it has a lot of Hawkline or Hawkline Monster or, or Richard Brodigan esque sort of touches about you know Billy the Kid shooting a guy you know, not quite in the heart so he could watch him slowly die. And as the guy's dying, a chicken comes and starts pecking a vein out of his neck that that it then yanks, you know, to so, so long out of the guy's neck that it looks like he's a kite on the ground. And his last words are, get off of me, you're stupid chicken, you know. <laughs> so it's like that kind of crazy, weird poetry. Yeah, um, it's funny. That sounds just like the part in Hawkline Monster where he says, stop shooting me and I'll die. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah exactly okay are you yeah and then we stopped shooting him and he was dead uh yeah so it has a lot of that s- humor and you know strange strange surreal aspects to it so and it and it's a very short book and it's not it's a, it's mostly poetry so it's not like you have to you know sit some kind of 400 page tome about the life of billy the kid it's all yeah some of it is historical most of it is just on Dache's imagination so i'd recommend that one I think those are the best narratives of Billy the Kid, right? The ones that get kind of a little more phantasmagorical or, you know, kind of kind of the mythology kind of takes the front page, not really like historical facts and things like that. It's the ones that have a poster that says Billy the Kid was a punk. Those are the best. <laughs> yes. That, yeah, that, that those are the best ones. Um, and just, just to throw in another thing that that I've always kind of felt had a vibe of the hotline monster would be... Um, the, uh, a song, the ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, off of John Wesley Harding, the the Bob Dylan song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you guys have have ever heard it. It's this long, surreal, rambling tale about a about these two guys, Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. One guy borrows money from the other, and then goes into this big house, which is like you think might be a whorehouse, but you don't know. And then he goes crazy in there and dies of thirst. And it's just it's weird, surreal imagery. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard it, but it's uh, oh, it, uh, Dylan's John Wesley Harding. That album is like his sort of after all his crazy like meth head, you know, surreal acid trip shit. Uh, he went back to like old country type folk music, but in a strange way. And uh, so, yeah, the ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, I think it has the vibe of the Hawkline monster. It's also where Judas Priest, the band, got their name. Oh yeah, wow. I thought I thought you were recommending a Judas Priest song at first before I understood no, 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 no. what you were saying. Uh, that's you know what you know what I've I've always had against that album is that it's called John Wesley Harding, and it's like I don't get it. What do you mean it's John Wesley Hardin? You what are you fucking uh, with me, Bob Dylan? What's going on? Here? Yeah, I think it's because well he named the album after Johnny Cash's song Harden When It Run. I think mm, okay. Bob Dylan just, just thought his name was uh, Harding. I don't think that he really put too much work into it. Beyond that, the song itself is like down in Cheney County. He just made it up. So, yeah, he didn't even get the name right. But, you know, <laughs> um, well, that's great. Two for one, two for one aperitifs. Thank you, sir. Well, also, I think that the listening to Harry Parch is like a, a incredible, certainly for the second two thirds of this novel would be a good, good thing to listen to when they get into it. Uh, do you know who Harry Parch is, John? He He's like a guy who like made his own instruments and stuff and has like his own system of like. I've heard of him. I've just not really listened to him. Stuff. It's very yeah. like. A, he, I think he's kind of listening to that while high. And that's a really, uh, <laughs> a really a big mountain. Uh, and at work trying to read. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh yeah harry Potter. i think he's the guy that sort of influenced tom waits to like start building instruments out of dumpsters and whatever yeah um, yeah very atmospheric interesting interesting work yeah it's and it's uh on the border of what you would call music also i would say uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, my my aperitif pairing is much less interesting i i was trying to contextualize this novel and sort of it's from 1974 and sort of the cultural moment that was happening especially in literature and this is this is like a super duper obvious pick but i think of the books I wanted to, I say read Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut if you've never read it because this is happening at a moment in literature. I I don't know anything about Richard Brodigan. Uh, this is the first thing I ever read by him except poems too. I've read some of his poems. His poems are all super duper short, so you can read you know fifty of them in, in a half an hour accidentally. Um, but this this reminded me a lot of the like Tom Robbins, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, even Charles Bukowski sort of like colloquially, colloquially um, sort of foul mouthed and a little bit playful and not necessary. I've read this book described as a parody and that's not true. I think it's closer to something like Slaughterhouse Five, which is not a parody of science fiction by any of the stretch of the imagination, but it's definitely taken the piss out of the Kilgore Trout type novels in some way you know it's definitely setting itself against the genre that came beforehand this is one of the things that that i think about uh, a lot now this is like a ridiculous thing to talk about in the podcast but i was recently hired to write a stoner comedy right like that's what i've been working on for the past two months and the people that hired me there's a lot of references that like we want it to be like this and this and this and this you know we want it to be like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and blah, 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 all of these other things. And you have to, um, I, it's really important for me for it to be the thing and not an impression of the thing. You know what I mean? That, that to write a script like that, you want it to be the thing itself, not our impression of these other things that we want it to be like, right? And I think that Hawkline Monster and Slaughterhouse-Five both, have in common they seem like parodies that are sort of taking the piss out of their genre but they also really sincerely want to be the thing itself you know they want to be a part of their genre in some fundamental way they want to be real books not sort of like deconstruction impressions of them you know i've i've heard that this novel was an influence on on murakami and i think in murakami's worst stuff it's an impression of the thing, not the thing itself. And I think that literary fiction that follows that moment of the 70s, especially when you start getting to 90s and early 2000s stuff, a lot of it is, you know, is an impression of the thing, not the thing itself. I don't know if I'm making any sense whatsoever right now, but I think that, you know, Slaughterhouse-Five has that same thing where it's sort of like... Uh, critiquing science fiction and and being slyly knowing and jokey about the genre and sort of trying to use the genre against itself in some way and i think it has that in common with the hawkline monster and it's and it's also they both want to like wander off and they have the same sort of sly sense of humor they both have the same sort of like love of using language in and of itself to make jokes like these are funny words these are funny phrases we can say these are 
you know, funny things we can say that are still in character, you know, that are still within the the sort of ontological space of the world. So I don't know. I had a, I, I definitely read this book and I was like, I don't fucking know what to compare it to because a lot of the obvious comparisons are like the Gothic, like it's a Gothic Western. So you could say, you know, uh, you know, horror Westerns like The Burrowers or Dark Tower or something, but those are actually fucking terrible comparisons to this book. It's actually nothing like the Gothic Western genre in general, you know? So it was, I, I was thinking it's a little more like that sort of like 70s sort of tricksterish, you know, countercultural, but not, you know, completely obliterating the rules of the game sort of, sort of, literary work of the time but i but i definitely i was i did this and you'll see with my dessert pairing that it's like i don't fucking know what to do with this no i think vonnegut's a legit pairing i you know i i, I thought of cat's cradle a lot especially with kind of the too, the pseudoscience yeah. towards the end and things like that unhappy chemicals the shadow pretending to be gravy was very yeah in that kind of realm so i think he and vonnegut are definitely of a mind with their humor uh no yeah. question about it the only reason yeah. I didn't Cat's Cradles is because it's 1963, and I was like, "That's too far away from this, from the moment I'm trying to blah blah blah." So I overthought <laughs> it. I uh, and I guess we'll get more into it as we talk about you know the novel itself. But I agree with you in terms of the way it it, it uh, uses genre. It's one of the things that I you know, as you guys probably know, that I that I have issues with is when. Uh, somebody enters into like a genre and it's like there's a sort of a smart ass they're they're above the genre you know what i mean they're you know and uh and so many westerns especially 70s westerns and stuff become that sort of thing or it becomes more of a thing of like let's uh let's uh let's throw out every trope or let's throw out every cliche or anything um and it's to me it's like okay that's fine but there's a reason those things stick around. So you either have to reinvent them and, it, or if you are going to destroy them, you better have something better. And most yeah. of them don't, you know, they usually have something that, you know, this is something that's been around for thousands of years, you know, these, these, these archetypes and things. So if you're not going to find the life in that trying to destroy it, well, good fucking luck. You're probably not the guy who's going <laughs> to destroy the entire genre. <laughs> and and even though, yeah, obviously this book does go in a completely different direction. Uh, like you said, I don't look at it as like a parody of the genre anymore. I look uh, that I would look at a Leone movie as a parody of the genre. It, yeah. it engages certain cliches and stuff, but it's more so, you know, he's not, it's, it, it really, to me, the first time I read it, obviously it's very funny and weird and uh, uh, surreal and whatever especially those early scenes, but I didn't take it as like, this is making fun of Westerns. I was just like, this is a weird fucking Western, you know? Yeah. So I, I think that's a good point because it's not people that say it's a parody of Westerns or Gothic literature, I think is not correct. Yeah, for sure. And it's got, and it's got, it's, it's got a very hard to describe tone and we'll, we'll get into it, but I have the same thing where that section before they get to the mansion, sort of the first third I was like, oh, this is my new favorite book. This is fucking incredible. You know, like I can't, I can't believe how good this is. You know, like I'm an idiot for not having read this before now kind of thing. And then by the end, same thing with you, when it gets more sort of like playful and picks up sort of wheel spinning as a theme and an idea, you know, where people forget their conversations and can't leave the room and sort of repeat in loops. I was like, 
am less enchanted with this than than with the the first section of it for sure. But um, yeah, well, I, what I know, I'm sorry. But, uh, what I so one thing I know about Rodigan is that what I I don't think he was a fan of like Shelley uh, and Percy and all I, 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 that. So. Yeah. And the gothic sections to me, I'm not an expert on gothic literature, but I read those sections and it's like, I don't know. I don't even know. I, I, I still think it's funny and everything, but I'm not even sure. His conversational sort of style works well with a Western because it sort of can be playful. It still sounds like a Western voice. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it still yeah, sounds like laconic that, Western is like yeah. peanut butter and jelly. Laconic gothic novel is like, ah, what are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. So, um, I just ended up reading a ton of Bram Stoker for the first time, and yeah, yeah, no, I I think it really kind of gave me a clarity to reread this novel through that context of like the stagey, uh, just just very dry, like kind of aspects of some of his novels where there's like a gothic mansion and a mystery, but then the characters come into a parlor room and then they're just kind of standing around talking it made me appreciate uh these characters who are their minds are being affected by this monster and they don't know what they're doing and they keep getting distracted and going off to do different things it really felt to me not exactly a parody but it felt like oh yeah that's exactly what happens in these kind of gothic books is like these characters move from room to room and we can't (laughs) like have the monster come show up and like everyone get killed because then the story would be over so they're just gonna just kind of while away and like move from one place to another and it's just like kind of goes on and on so i kind of had a new appreciation for it based on that yeah i mean all that stuff i think is good i don't want to like show on that aspect of it too much and you probably know more about gothic literature than i do and everything but i just felt that his with the western he was the western section his voice fit with it with while still being weird and unique and everything his voice to me seemed to and it still worked, but it just doesn't, it works. The second section works more so is just kind of funny. You're not really yeah. drawn into it in my mind. I don't know. Definitely. Um, yeah, we'll definitely but, get into it. Um, yeah. Before before we before we launch right into the uh, the plot and everything, last thing I just want to say, because we brought up Brodigan's poetry a little bit, uh, this is the only time I think I'm going to get a chance to mention this. Um I used to work at St. Mark's bookstore in the East village and uh, Harmony Corinne stopped by one day and was just kind of doing his regular, you know, uh, rambling kind of like hanging around and just being a weird, you know, great kooky artist kind of guy. And uh, he was looking for poetry specifically. And one of the books that I hooked him up with was a Richard Brodigan book. And oh my God, you're responsible for that. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I am shocked as anybody. I don't know if he was a fan already. It was, you know, hard to engage and everything. But years later, seeing the beach bum and hearing the Matthew McConaughey character quote Xerox candy bar verbatim, I was pretty shocked that, you know, a Brodigan poem had made it into a Harmony Corinne movie. And I immediately uh, jumped online with Martin Kessler and was like, do you think the Matthew McConaughey character was supposed to have stolen that? Or is that Harmony Corinne being like, no, I'm using this as an original thing. By pretending that it's actually Matthew McConaughey making up this thing, I didn't know how to take it, but I was pretty shocked. So weird is all of those times he saw you eating spaghetti in the bathtub too. <laughs> wait. <laughs> uh, wait, which one is Xerox Candy Bar? 
the entirety of Xerox candy bar is, ah, uh, you're just a copy of all the candy bars I've ever eaten. Okay. So there's another Richard Bradigan poem that he quotes in the beach bump. And I, I remember uh, going, wait a minute, is this a fucking Richard Bradigan poem? It's the one, and it's one of his, like, it sounds like it was written for the Matthew McConaughey character. I don't think it's one of Brodigan's best poems. It's the one about, like, he's talking to, about some lover, and he's like, I was inside you oh, three times. You know what? You know what? I'm, I'm, I got the wrong poem. You're absolutely right. That's the one I was thinking of. Beautiful poem or something, right? Beautiful where, poem or something? Where he's, at, he's, he's, he's peeing at the stall, and he says, looking down at my penis, knowing it's been inside of you earlier makes me feel beautiful or something like that. You're right. That's yeah. the poem. That's yeah, the one I was thinking of. Yeah. At the end. When I when I first saw the movie, because I hadn't read Brodigan stuff for a while, I was like, is this a parody of that Richard Brodigan poem? You know? And then I was like, wait, it's just the poem. It's just the text of it. <laughs> no, I'm glad you uh, remembered well, the right poem. Yeah, because I had mis misremembered that it was Xerox Candy Bar, but that's the one for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, man, if you're the one responsible for that, that's awesome. I have no idea, but I, I definitely found it weird that there was that weird connection from all those years apart. But, you know, if you appreciated Brodigan, then then great. Well, I think you got to take credit for this one, John. Uh, are you, so how big of a, a Brodigan fan are you? Because you haven't told us your history with him. Yeah, I've read pretty much all his stuff. I like his stuff a lot. Uh my favorite book, one of my very favorite books, period, is by him. It's called Sombrero Fallout. Uh, in fact, our friend Chris Mike Morona had lent me the book in college. That's when I first read Richard Brodigan and loved it. And uh, so that's mainly what it is. Like he wrote one of my favorite books. And his other books I have, you know, kind of varying thoughts on. Some are good, some are less good. But I, I like this period of his uh, his career where he uh, is specifically had this plan that he said every year I'm going to write a different genre book. So he started by doing this one and then he did, you know, a detective mystery book. And uh, I can't remember if we moved on to a romance or whatever, but he was specifically experimenting with like different genres and kind of seeing what he could do and how, what, how he could bring the Brodigan voice to these, you know, tried and true genres in, uh, in literature. So, you know, I, I like Brodigan uh, again. I'll always have great affection for Sombrero Fallout, which uh, has a lot, you know, in common with this book in terms of just, you know, characters being in different spaces and kind of checking in, kind of moving back and forth between their kind of mindsets and lingering with like their thoughts as they're lying naked in a room or whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely like this book kind of compared to the one that I really love. So, so I am, I would say I'm a fan. I don't, wouldn't consider myself an expert exactly, but, uh, but yeah, I like them a lot. What would you consider yourself on an expert to the level that David is for Westerns? <laughs> nothing. There's nothing <laughs> I am on that level with. I have, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fount of knowledge. I just, I remember vague things and then I have to go back and research them. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a guy who's very <laughs> around my mind. Maybe, maybe Bill Biv and DeVoe. That's it. <laughs> you know, I bet you don't even know the whole ABC, BBD, East Coast family. Um, David, I was going to ask you, did you do that? Um, that I don't even know if it was a full thread, but mentioning the um, Hawaiian cowboys because you were rereading this book. Did that was there a connection there with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was because I was rereading it uh, because I, you know, I've known a little bit about about the sort of vaquero um 
what is the name? I don't know. I can't remember. It's like uh, Paniolo. I don't know how to say it. It's basically there. It's basically a Polynesian or Hawaiian version of uh, um, Espanol. Yeah. Because they in the seven, late 1700s, um, the Hawaii was given like like a not even a big amount, like maybe 20 cows and one bull. And, uh, the, uh, you know, and it became illegal to kill them or anything because they wanted to kind of, you know, they wanted to use all this grazing land and everything. But by the 1830s, they were overrun with all this cattle. So they so the uh, king sent for um, uh, a couple of Mexican vaqueros from California and they taught all these Hawaiians how to be cowboys. And and uh, and uh, so there's a whole subculture of uh, Hawaiian cowboys from the 1800s. Uh, it still exists today. I think I think that beef is like their third most like biggest export or something to that effect in Hawaii. So. But yeah, this did spring that on of like, oh yeah, I remember, I remember Hawaii's relation to cowboys. I'll, I'll, I'll look that up real quick. Post something. So yeah, you are correct. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I at least put those pieces of the puzzle together. John, do you want to take us through the plot of this book? It's a very simple plot, just to to so the listeners know. And as always, we spoil everything. Read the book, and and come back if you're really concerned. But uh. You want to dig in, John? Yeah, well, let's just start with uh, the dedication to the Montana gang. David, you must know who the Montana gang is, right? Uh, Thomas McGuane. Mm-hmm. Um, what, Jim Harrison? Jim Harrison, you got it. Uh, do you know Jim Harrison's review of the Hawkeye monster? I no. don't. <laughs> oh, no. uh, here, let me see. I got it here because I think it's important. It's a great review. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, had a wonderful time with Hawkline last night between midnight three, the best hours of any day, the first untainted hours. Boy, did I ever want to fuck those Hawkline sisters. <laughs> so, Jim Harrison or James Hancock, one of them wrote that review. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yes. So it's Thomas McGuane. It's uh, Jim Harrison. It's uh, William Yortsberg, who would later write Falling Angel, which became Angel Heart, the movie. Uh, it's the painter Russell Chatham. It's Peter Fonda, who at the time was married to Portia Crockett, Thomas McGuane's ex-wife. Jeff Bridges, War Notes, and our boy Sam Peckinpah. They are all basically invited to Paradise Valley in Montana uh, by McGuane, who's known at that time as Captain Berserko because he's had this idea that he's going to become a Hollywood guy now. He's going to write all these screenplays. And obviously he writes screenplays for 92 in the Shade. Uh, and, and directs the movie and writes the one for the Missouri breaks that he's going to like, you know, make all this money. And that's, that's what his, his focus now is going to be to just like turning, turning out books and then turning them into screenplays and then selling them to Hollywood is sort of his idea. And he uh, becomes this big kind of Hollywood type. He buys a portion and crashes it within like a week and almost kills himself. Uh, so he has this collective of like cool artists and actors who are all kind of like enamored of him and showing up. So he invites Richard Brodigan to come and write, uh, the Hawkline monster in Montana, which is where he does it at the same time that he's, uh, that uh, McQueen is McWayne is writing 92 in the shade. Um, so that's who the Montana gang is. And that's who the book is dedicated to Peckinpah and the guys. And of course, you know, when we get into the movie adaptation, the, the failed movie adaptations of the Hawkline monster, this will all make even more sense. Um, anyway, so 
the Hawkman monster. Don't, don't, don't forget okay. Jimmy Buffett though, because I think every any time you read anything about them, Jimmy Buffett is there. Like, <laughs> oh, really? I didn't know that. Getting drunk. Oh yeah. Uh, fuck. I, uh, I could be wrong. Uh, it makes sense. Think, it makes sense because our boy Bill Tech. Uh, brought up uh, Thomas McGuane and Jimmy Buffett in the same sentence when we talked about uh, Miami fiction. So I I believe it. Oh, More they're like they were like best friends, and I I think Thomas McGuane married or dated or something. Someone I don't know if it was a Buffett ex or relative or something. I I he I, I don't know. He might have like fucked one of Jimmy Buffett's ex wives or dated one. Anyway, anyway, Jimmy Buffett. If you there's this. Have you read the what is it called? The what's that huge like eight hundred page Richard Brodigan biography? I skimmed it. Oh, I the one by uh, by by Jortsberg. Uh, uh, the um, yeah yeah Jubilee Hitchhiker or is that the poem? Yeah yeah Jubilee Jubilee Hitchhiker is what's Jubilee Hitchhiker. Yeah yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have you read that one? I have not read the whole thing. No. <laughs> yeah yeah I haven't either. Well, I but, haven't. Yeah. You know when I saw the dedication in my Montana gang, you know what I thought. Huh, I wonder who those are. That's my relationship to all this stuff. Huh, I wonder what that is. And now you know. That's what we. That's what we're doing podcasts for. <laughs> Just inform the general public of the Montana Gang and their existence. And uh, how about that? McGuane has basically buried everybody, right? Other than uh, Jeff Bridges, he's uh, he's the last one standing of this whole gang. Oh, oh Michael yeah. Butler, I forgot to mention, who ended up being the cinematographer of Ninety Two in the Shade and The Missouri Breaks, was hanging out with those guys also, and he also shot. Charlie Varick. Best uh, I know at one point McGuane was, he had a, uh, Robert Altman was interested in doing, I think adapting 92 in the shade and brought again. And I can't remember the other guy. They were, they were in San Francisco and they were like, this ain't Hollywood. And I guess brought again. And some other guy just berated Robert Altman the whole time. They're like, you fucked up the long goodbye <laughs> and all this other shit. <laughs> and uh, finally Robert Altman was like, I've had enough of your shit. You fuck. And then, you know, and then basically read them the riot act. Anyway, he the deal fell through. <laughs> and that's Very one of the nice find anecdotes of people liking Robert Altman. I feel like every anecdote about him is what you just told. That that's every single thing is people being like that fucking guy and him being like, fuck this, you. This is one of the only cases where it's like I felt bad for Robert Altman because he always <laughs> seems like a fucking asshole. So <laughs> this is one of these where I was like, oh, I can't even believe he took that. Um, it's one of the nicer stories about Richard Brodigan uh, encountering, you know, 70s directors, which I have a couple here. So oh, interesting. <laughs> I don't know if we want to get into the story, the, the book and then the stories or I could pepper them throughout unless you guys are already aware. I yeah, no, let's, let's circle back around to the stories because we'll talk about I, the movie uh, treatments. I googled Montana Gang and uh, tried to figure out what it was. There's apparently a gang called The Innocents. That was like a Western train robbing gang in Montana. And I was like, oh, no, that doesn't seem like what it's in reference to. Oh, well, I'll go record the podcast. <laughs> That's how much I know about any of this. I have certainly haven't heard any of these anecdotes. <laughs> I half expected ones. David to just jump in about the innocence and be like, I know all about him. Let me tell you. <laughs> I don't. I actually don't. I don't. <laughs> so the Hawkline monster is kind of... Uh, segmented into three parts but it's really kind of two halves uh and it starts with a pair of killers assassins named greer and cameron in hawaii where they're unable to 
uh, fulfill their contract because the guy is teaching his kid how to ride a horse. So they feel bad and they can't kill him. So they have a terrible experience there and they come back and they are almost immediately hired uh, by a woman named Magic Child to come with her to Oregon, Eastern Oregon, and uh, kill a monster, they find out once they get closer. So the second half of the book becomes just them in the house. Uh, it's The whole thing is set there at the Hawkline Mansion. Uh, weird things are happening, strange distortions of reality. People are waking up without their clothes on and not realizing why. They are losing their identity and dressing up like Native Americans and all, and then forgetting about that. Uh, so it becomes kind of a big psychedelic uh, horror show in the second half. Um, but when we when we meet these characters, Greer and Cameron, uh, they you know are very colorful personalities. Greer is a guy who's still alive because he's a very curious person and is interested in everything. And Cameron is a guy who counts everything. He's a counter, loves to just count things everywhere they go. Um, and these are these are skills that surprisingly help them fight the monster at the end. Um, so what is it, David, about the kind of setting here at the beginning at the turn of the century. I think it's supposed to be what, 1908, 1902 or something like that. Uh, yeah. July of 1902. Um, how is, how is the setting uh, in terms of authenticity and everything? Does it seem like, you know, it's got the right uh, sort of, or does it immediately uh, get uh, anachronistic? I think, I think Richard Brodigan mostly researched the guns. <laughs> I was going to say the guns have got to be the most accurate thing, right? The, yeah. the crack and the yeah. Winchester. And it's like you when you do read it because it keeps like throughout the book that he keeps like mentioning like the like he won't just say the rifle like every time he has to tell you what it's chambered in you know yeah, uh, carrying it. and it's and you go wait a minute is he kind of making fun of like westerns but then when you actually I mean obviously he shot himself uh, but uh, when you read like stories about him. Oh, he loved guns and he was always pointing them at people and just going, he was a fucking madman. Um, so, so then it's like, I don't know if he's making fun of it or if he just really loves describing these fucking the crag and all that. In terms of authenticity, I mean, uh, the Hawaiian, I like the Hawaiian part. That's a, that's, that's an interesting aspect. It's, I guess, technically the most Western a Western can get. Right. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, there's references to to uh, you know our actions in in uh, uh, in the Philippines, which at the time I guess maybe probably has some sort of connection to like Vietnam, you know. Uh, yeah. But uh, in terms of authenticity, <laughs> it's it's uh, he I, he doesn't put enough detail in for me to crit critique it that much. You know, the language is a little modern, but that's fine. Um, the swearing is not, uh, it, it's, it's not anachronistic, but it is a little, it doesn't come off as like, you know, authentic early 20th century, 19th century dialect. But I mean, other than that, yeah, outside of the guns, I think, <laughs> I don't know how much research he did, like part of the appeal of it, as, especially in the first section is that to me, the novel is sort of written in a way like you're listening to like a great bullshitter and you're enjoying it. And so you're like, I'm believing this. And then you but then you kind of see like a twinkle in his eye where he's just like, I'll just call a town Billy, Billy and Brooks or whatever. And you're like, <laughs> did he actually was he just like, was he did he do any editing or was he, these the first things that popped into his mind? You know, but uh, that's the kind of thing uh, I'm always looking out for in a book like this. You know, when he talks about Gompville. 
which has which is the headquarters of the Morning County Sheep Shooters Association, where there is a feud now between guys who like to shoot sheeps and sheep owners, and that both sides have brought in gunmen from Portland, and it just seems like a big Johnson County War kind of uh, yeah. uh, parable in terms of like how feuds get started in the West. Yeah, I yeah I I uh, uh, I will say that I. Uh, the first half of the book is surprisingly more historically grounded than you'd expect, I guess, because it does have those things that, yeah, the, the fuse between the sheepmen and all that. And it has these weird details of like being in San Francisco, you know, to shoot the tough China, Chinese dude or whatever, uh, or going to, so it has those details and everything. Um, and, and from my understanding is that he really you know, he was trying to like write a Western, you know, uh, he was in Montana. He was, he would hang out with people like Sam Peckinpah or obviously like Thomas McGuane or whatever. Um, You've been to that and, part of, of Eastern Oregon before. Have I? Yeah. I'm just, was just, curious. I've been to, I've been to Oregon a couple of times. I don't know if I've been to that part of it now. It's, it's interesting know. because I I went through Montana once and then crossed over Idaho into Washington and then went down into that part of Eastern Oregon. And it's crazy how much it looks like the traditional picture of the Old West. That was something that really struck me at the novels, him picking Eastern Oregon and being like, this looks like a John Ford movie out here more than you know Oklahoma does anymore. You know what I mean? It, it really had a look that was... I guess because like Idaho and that part of it is just unpopulated or underpopulated, but it was really full of like this, this looks like a, a landscape that I picture when I picture Westerns. And it was very surprising to me when I drove through it. Yeah. He, I think he, I could be wrong, but I believe when he was younger, he lived in Oregon uh, or something. And I, and I think that he, I, I can't remember all the biographical details. I tried to look up like what inspired, you know, the hotline monster, whether it was previous literature, any kind of specifics. And I couldn't find much, but I think that he worked at some weird big house in Oregon when he was young. Um, and the oh, the whole counting thing was something that he did himself. There's a lot of stuff here for, uh, let me see here. I, I have a few notes about, uh, let me see. And one thing that that the the book wrote, wrote about is the roads looking like a dying man's handwriting, right? And I, I remember specifically going from Idaho to Washington, and the roads twisted in a way that was nonsensical. That that like you go over like a river from Idaho to Washington, and it immediately starts making these like S type curves that are unnecessary it's like sort of like flatlands and it's like why is why are the roads like this it's, it was a very striking aspect of it i was really surprised when i read it like oh he picked this for a reason and he's describing it fairly fairly accurately it felt like to me at any rate yeah, yeah i he yeah after he did odd jobs at a 21 room uh mansion in eugene oregon when he was <laughs> uh, after school as a teenager so I think that that is probably yeah. He's describing his own experience. I know that, uh, from my understanding, a lot of his work is obviously autobiographical. 
Um, and this one is one where it's like, what what would even be autobiographical about this one? sisters. That's pretty autobiographical. Oh yeah, well we've all had <laughs> we've all met our, our own Hawkline sisters, right? Um, but well, there's uh, definitely something uh, about the Hawkline sisters that must be autobiographical, at least in terms of like Moonchild sounding like. They keep saying sounds like an Indian, but this sounds like a fucking hippie, right? I mean, it sounds like somebody who'd be <laughs> yeah. like a groupie for like Richard Brodigan of Montana gang at the time. Yeah, yeah. And Brodigan strikes me as one of those guys like an Altman or like a Peck and Paul, because from my understanding, he hated hippies. And uh, I guess McGuane at one point got so pissed at him because he was just being such an asshole. He's like, you're a fucking pet rock. You owe everything to the hippies. And it was at some kind of dinner party, and him and McGuane went to the bathroom and, and were fighting. <laughs> and Brodigan came out all quiet. But uh, um, but I guess he had disdain for for hippies and shit. But he reminds me of one of those dudes that's like, yeah, I guess I'm not, you know, uh, a you know a traditional dude, but he's still kind of that post-war old school dude. But he's like, you know, bunch of young, <laughs> just a bunch of free sex and. Uh, I don't know if he was into drugs, but I know he was into a lot of booze. There's a bunch of free sex and everything. Yeah, I guess. You know, I'll hang out. I'll do some hippie shit. I mean, when you look at him, he's the most hippie looking fucking guy ever. But it's just funny. Like, I'm not a hippie. Well, you might be Richard Brodigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many, I don't care how many guns you point at famous directors. We'll get to that later. But still a fucking hippie, man. No, Pepper <laughs> and now what famous director did he point a gun at? Oh boy, I shouldn't have led with that one. Uh, <laughs> I'll get to that one later. He did throw Nicholas Road down some stairs and broke his foot. It's oh, uh, reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Exactly. I'm like, he sounds like a real dick, but like, uh, maybe he should have done some of that. The argument was Road came over and and uh, they were drinking whiskey, and uh, he's like, "This is 18 year old whiskey." And Rose, like, "There's no way." So they look at the bottle. It was 16 years old. And Brodigan goes, see, I was right. I've owned this bottle for two years. <laughs> and goes, I don't think it works that way. So he threw him down a flight of stairs. Anyway. <laughs> so, but, uh, but uh, okay, go back. <laughs> magic Child, right? Right, Magic Child, the, yeah. uh, the maybe 15-year-old hippie, she doesn't seem entirely certain, uh, who is very, very generous with uh with 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 both all the men that she comes across but in a way that's you know obviously i think you know the wrong person reading this would take offense but it seems like oh the the old lonely horse renter who hasn't had sex thought his sex life was over because he's in his 60s that she will have sex with him is like oh that's 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 incredibly nice there's something really sweet about that yeah something very spawn ranch about that uh, <laughs> uh, no, it is funny in the book how they keep introducing these characters like the Marshal who just punches people and throws them in a creek because he doesn't have a jail. <laughs> it's not, actually, not that historically. Most Western towns did not have jails, so it's just like they they would sometimes sometimes a prisoner would have to live in the guy's house, you know, with him, <laughs> or they'd nail him down up to the ground or chain him up to a tree or something. But anyway, yeah, but it, every everyone they meet is like, they had a real fondness for Magic Child. And you're like, okay. And then you're just waiting for it. And like, you know, a few passages later, oh, yeah, they'd fuck here. And she's just fucking everyone in town. So everyone's like, oh, sweet old Magic Child. 
<laughs> Wonderful. We all really there. missed you and are happy you're back in town. I love the description of that guy's horses too, because he notoriously has the worst horses in Oregon. Word is even the governor has heard about how bad these horses are. But that stuff, there's so much little stuff like that that's fantastic in the early that, going. That is one of my favorite passages. Because I mean, and that's the stuff that really spoke to me, which which goes away once they get to the mansion, you know. Yeah, all these characters, and you're like, oh man, I want to see where this goes, right? And then they yeah. go to the mansion, that none of those cut away, which you know, it's fine. But yeah, the thing about the horses where it's like the horse didn't have a foot, and the guy who tried to make a, a wooden foot for him was, you know, he screwed up and he wasn't right in the head anyway, and he made him a duck foot, you know, and it's like, what <laughs> what is this? Or like a horse without ears because the guy was so drunk. He's like, I'll bet you $50. I'm not drunk enough to bite the ears. I'm drunk enough to bite the ears off that horse. I say you're not drunk enough. And so he bought the, bit the ears off a horse. And you wonder, how did he get to the second ear? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're drunk to get hungry. I get that. But yeah, it's that stuff that, that I love that still completely, you know, falls within the the genre it doesn't feel out of place but it's so funny and you know like I a love, family guy cut away yeah <laughs> i love i love the the town minister frederick cairns who wants to put a fence around the graveyard because deer have been like eating the flowers that are being left at the graves and everyone else in the town is completely apathetic because who gives a shit if deer yeah, is just eating like, some flowers off of the graves. but that's a perfect character yeah, literally, literally. That he gets angry for some reason it makes them furiously angry. It's like, yeah, you just run into those people in life who like are furiously angry about something that's like, who cares? You know, oh, I that <laughs> for, for some strange reason, it made the minister mad whenever he saw some deer among the graves and he started cursing up a storm. But nobody ever took putting a fence or up, up putting a fence up around the grave very seriously. The people just didn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the pros that works. In the first half for me. Yeah. That's the type of the people, yeah, that kind of direct sort of conversational style. Especially when you're thinking about like a small town, you know, a new town that's just been, you know, settled in only a few years. And like what is important when you're like establishing like a new civilization out in the West, you know, like fences are important. No, they're not. You know, who cares about that? It's you can just kind of imagine like in real life, like people getting into those kind of like stupid arguments or getting that like angry about something that may or may not matter depending on your point of view and that's yeah, like well, civilization they and the two towns right are over two brothers who killed shot each other over some chickens or something right billy and brooks yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah it ha it, yeah it has all that um oh, what was the other section that i that you had just mentioned anyway yeah, I really liked and reading a lot of your where uh, your sort of Twitter stuff and listening to you on, on other podcasts. I the the concept of its description of the town where where um uh where where this is. Is it just Billy or Brooks? I can't remember the one where that where all the people were describing live in, but how it's located in a valley, like on a river, with the houses situated on each side, and just how like that sort of one horse town with a main central road didn't exist the like classic western town that we see in every western is not a, a particularly accurate depiction of any town that ever existed in the west and so reading this description of one in the banks it's like 
this feels much more realistic than than that classic movie western town than the the my darling clementine town you know what i mean so i that's something that i was wondering if if I had gotten a false impression from your work, or if you think that 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 uh, this is more on the right track. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, the the yeah, those set bound sort of uh, high noon kind of uh, things where you could literally see like the wires, like the Culver City wires in the skyline. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the his like I said, it, the 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 first section is surprisingly not as like. Um, just completely wrong historically as you'd expect not that you would even you know i mean it's more authentic than a craig zoller movie or <laughs> um but uh um, it's a pretty high bar to clear we can all agree on that <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> uh but uh um yeah i thought, yeah, I thought dragged across the plate pavement was pretty accurate yeah, to what? <laughs> uh, Mel Gibson being a racist? I don't know. <laughs> that time you dragged Harvin and Corinne across the pavement. Am I remembering? That? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, and, and but, I mean, and that that is the thing, and and I think that's it's what I always talk about. It's like for me uh, with westerns, it's like I want people to use their imagination and go wild and everything, but but having a foundation of something that is tangible or real can then you can kind of go off you know and so and, and so he i don't i i whereas the second section of the book like i said does kind of feel a little bit like he's making it up as he goes along like not you know what i mean it's like now they do this now they do that now the butler's a giant now he shrinks or whatever um uh the first half is more grounded but also so weird and strange I'm going to keep talking about how I just won't want that whole tone of that first half to, <laughs> to sustain the whole, the whole yeah, thing. But I agree with you a thousand percent on that. I, I really did not have, I still like the book and when it gets to the end of it, I have a reaction of, I like that. But when I was reading through it, I, I had no patience for that second. It, it really was a like, can we get back to the shit I was loving? Can we get that? Is it going to go back there? Exact same thing you're saying, like, are these characters going to pay off? Is like some of the weird things he sets up, like the the ice growing here in the middle of the desert, like what's, what's going to happen? And I was frustrated with it. When it gets to the end, I'm like, oh, I like all of that stuff. If that's all it's going to be, I like it. But when I'm reading through it, it's definitely, I was definitely having a like, what are you doing? Go back to what I want, you know, kind of reaction yeah yeah i yeah it's and i think the other problem with the the second section of it for me is just the uh it's i i don't like it when they i like weirdness i like surrealism i like that kind of stuff that's out of place you know uh mansion out in oregon that's built on ice caves and stuff that's weird whatever i i like that stuff when you get into the monster and the chemicals for me, that section you could almost only really appreciate it comedically, because it's so it's so specific as to what the monster is. So it's not just that there's weirdness happening generally, which I think the first half of the book has, um, but it's also like so nebulous as to what it can do. It can what what it what are its powers? Which sounds stupid, 
and too technical but for me it's like i can't connect because i don't know what the monster can do what it can't do and it's not like some kind of otherworldly like supernatural thing it's a guy a guy created in a lab it just to me i can only take that section as silly and funny which is fine but i don't only take the first section that way yeah, it's, it's worth bringing up, too, that we expect the monster to be like a, a an actual, like, full-blown monster as it's described as banging behind, like, a locked door, like a steel door trying to get in. So we kind of go into it thinking, dog. yeah, we, we go in thinking like it's going to be an actual beast of some sort. So the reveal that it's uh, a light, <laughs> you know, you almost have that kind of, like, really reaction to it. But in a way that obviously I think is pretty intentional that you're supposed to be like, you know, Oh, it's a fucking light. <laughs> you know? Yeah, a jar somehow. I agree with you where I sort of gave up on trying to understand what its powers were. And we just discussed this. We did an episode on Dead and Buried, the Gary Sherman film just recently with screenwriter Tom Vaughn. And I talked about how at the end of that movie, you 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 don't understand what the rules are, which makes the impact much, much less. And I think that's a fair thing to complain about. Um, not that the rules have to be coherent always, you know, I'm not, you know, a fascist about it, but I do think you're right that the comedic elements overwhelm it because we don't understand what the threat is or how it works or how to attack it. You know, there's no tension to build up of like where they're going with it, how it's going to work if their plan is supposed to be absurd, if their plan is supposed to be clever, it, you know, it, it is the narrative engine drops out of the vehicle because we don't understand what the thing is particularly. I, I agree with you that that's sort of the reason. So you're left with just the funny stuff and that's what stands out because there's no narrative drive in the second half of the book whatsoever. And by design. Yeah. And, and and I don't want to be like a, pen, uh, a you know, a pendant, like who's like a, a pedant like what are the rules like it's a whatever like yeah. it's a marvel movie like superhero movie like what are like, the rules like here? you're fucking jamie kennedy and scream right here you're breaking but, the first rule man what are the rules of the monster <laughs> i guess what interests me the most about this is like how intentional it is one of the first things that happens when they reach the mansion is that Moonchild is revealed to be the spitting image the twin sister of miss hawkline and she immediately takes off her uh her Native American costume, and she puts on a uh, the exact same thing Miss Hawkline is wearing, and Moonchild effectively dies. Right, they become like two of the same woman, and both of the cowboys kind of uh, regret, you know, losing Moonchild and now having like two versions of a woman. They're not sure which one is which. It's almost like he's immediately like stripping this narrative of personality and identity. The way that he's, you know, when we meet Marvin Corey Jones, the barbed wire drummer, and like we hear all about his story, and like we like we said a few paragraphs, like we know everything about that character, and he's this very rich uh, personality. And then once we get to the mansion, everyone is stripped of that, like immediately. And I'm just wondering, like, is it kind of like a self sabotaging sort of thing to suddenly take away this kind of rich? Uh, journey that we've kind of been on and just stopping it in one location and having all the characters suddenly become uh, sort of like stereotypes of, you know, just kind of more like bland, broad characterizations. Yeah. And you don't, and you, and the thing is, since the monster is kind of controlling, you don't know when it's they're acting on their own volition or the monster's doing it, you know? And, and, 
I mean, I do believe it's deliberate and, and, and maybe I'm, and maybe I'm missing the point, but it's just, I guess the richness of the first half goes away for me. The fact that it's so specific as to the origins of the monster, but it's what it does is so nebulous to me. It's like, I I can't get a hold on anything as opposed to just being weird. But I, but uh, no, I think um, you're right. I think that had the same reaction, but I guess I'm wondering like, and again, is this just like from me reading Bram Stoker recently, but is it a comment on Westerns are fun. Gothic stories are dumb. <laughs> you know, like is a, a monster is a monster. Like who cares? It's a dumb thing. And it might as well be a light. You know, I imagine like uh, when I read about the light going around the room and hiding, you know, in the, uh, in the, uh, the pearl necklace and on the chandelier and things like that. I just imagine like, a play you know like a like a sparse high school play with like the tinkerbell light from peter pan you know like just kind of going around moving around and everything it has this real sparseness to it that almost seems not just comedic but like it's uh, you know intentionally cheesy yeah there's an intentionality there i guess what i'm saying though too i guess is i think that that it, it like you said i feel like he's less interested in that genre Maybe it's because I'm less interested in that genre, but I just feel that he doesn't he doesn't infuse that with as much thought. But yeah. as a Broadway fan, it also literally becomes them going, what were we talking about? Why did we go to this room? That happens over and over in that second half. Like literally the narrative engine is gone. The whole theme and joke he's writing is like, we were talking about Hawaii. No, we weren't fucking talking about Hawaii. You know, like they literally can't even, you know, it's like hanging out <laughs> with people who are stoned out of their minds, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, uh, yeah. I was going to make a point and I totally forgot it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I, I think the Hogfly monster is in here somewhere. Um, <laughs> um yeah, yeah, it's yeah. You just I don't know the the the, the that feels that section feels more smartass. It feel it, I don't I want to say it's parody, but that feels more like he is making fun of gothic stuff. Whereas the first section, I don't feel he's making fun of westerns. You know, sure, um, sure. But uh, um. Yeah, I forgot the other point I was going to make. You guys say something. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. It threw you off. Yeah, think about what you're going to say. Knocked your brain. No, it wasn't going to be good. If I if it was good, I'd remember. <laughs> which can we hear which director he pointed a gun at yet? Uh, okay, yeah, uh, it was Vin Vendors. <laughs> oh yeah, Wim Wenders. I don't know Vin Vendors. Vendors Vendors is is correct. Yeah, he uh um I guess he had uh he'd invited him over. If Richard Brodigan, he's dead now, but if you somehow find yourself in the 70s and Richard Brodigan invites you over, don't go to his house. <laughs> so they went over and they were they got they got hammered and I know Brodigan's girlfriend or wife was there, maybe his daughter, maybe it was a dinner, I think it was just them. So Brodigan they're getting along famously. Brodigan brings out uh, the German translation of trout fishing in America. And he says, what is, how, how good is this translation? And vendors looks at it and goes, uh, it's a little formal, you know, it's, it's a little awkward, you know, and Brodigan, who's hammered. is like, what the fuck are you talking about? As if he did the translation. 
<laughs> so suddenly he just flips out. He starts blaming. He starts, you know, he starts blaming uh, Vin Vendors for the Holocaust, everything. <laughs> and his, his girlfriend or wife uh, is like, Vim, get out of here. You know, Vin Vendors looks up. Brodigan hammered, has a shotgun, and he's pointing it at him. <laughs> and so, so Brodigan's girlfriend, like, sneaks vendors out and be and vendors talks about it about how scared shitless he was Brodigan's out of his mind pointing a shotgun at him because he insulted the german translation so, and, yet, and yet he's still courageous enough to turn around and say you're not my american friend <laughs> yes <laughs> so, so yeah all of them uh, up at toronto at the toronto film festival I walked into a restaurant. Our John had left and I saw him and I didn't realize it was him. He was a very tall guy in like black rimmed owl glasses. He looked like a cartoon character. I was like, who the fuck is this guy? He looked like he looked like Jacques Tati in a Wes Anderson movie. He was one of the, I just saw a fundamentally absurd looking person. And I hadn't seen a recent photo of him. The next day I saw a photo of him in the same outfit at like PR stills. And I was like, oh, that was fucking Vim Vendors in that restaurant standing around looking absolutely absurd. Wish I had had my shotgun. You still shouldn't have pointed a shotgun at him, Thunderbird. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, so this 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 big conclusion in the Dead Hills in this house, um, I'm, I'm, I'm with you guys. And I, I used to have the exact same opinion of like the second half blows compared to the first half. Um, and, but this time, I guess... Thinking more about how on purpose it was, uh, it, it gave it some. It, it at least worked for me in a different kind of way. I agree, it's still really disappointing after the first half. And I, I'm with Funderburg. I would like to stay on that path and have them just I, keep on I traveling. It once it's over. When I'm done reading the book, I was like, oh, okay, I like that. When I was done reading it, when I was in it, it, it was frustrating to me. But when yeah. it's over, like now that we're done, I like that stuff. You know, but when I was inside of it, I don't want to make it sound like I'm completely against the second half of the novel. Sorry yeah, and it, it might not all just be parody either. I mean, the stuff with, you know, people transmogrifying into dwarfs and, you know, turning out to be an elephant foot uh, umbrella holder and things like that. It reminded me of like the Oz books or something, you know, uh, characters, you know, who are like you know, trapped in, in objects and, you know, get released from them. Things like that. I didn't know what an elephant. I, I was like, what is an elephant? foot umbrella holder anyway and i googled it. it's like it's an actual it's made to look like an actual elephant's foot and you just put umbrellas inside of it no they're made from ele they used to be made from elephant's feet it's like oh it's wow like a genre of furnishing yeah interesting interesting yeah well, I, I i don't want to be too hard on that second half because i even from the beginning i've always liked it and i think the last time reading it i liked it even more especially being high and listening to harry parts <laughs> but uh, uh helps it has to help but it is a it's a come down it's just a it just there, there's no uh, to i and and so you're a bigger fan of brodigan now with the what is it the, so the wind doesn't blow it all away that one you have you read yeah. that one about uh, yeah, yeah the kid, read some point. Shoots his friend or some something to that effect and and so and in that one, it's all about like this kid who it's all these different events and it's all about kind of his imagination, sort of not that this terrible thing where he accidentally killed his friend on a hunting trip has stopped his imagination, but it's put it in a different direction. Like he, from my understanding, he's always kind of like 
about like he his his poems and and the books that I've read. It's like the imagination for good or bad, and so this idea of the chemicals thing is that is you know it does things like the human imagination, but there's also this other thing where it's the shadow that's trying to destroy it and shit. I don't want to get too <laughs> pretentious here or anything, but it is one of those things where it's like, is he just making jokes or is he, you know, is this something, is he trying to say something? I think he, the fact that he killed it with booze, you know, and, and Richard Bradham is a famous drunk. It just, there's something about it that, uh, and I, and I believe that he was also, was he, wasn't he diagnosed as schizophrenic or something when he was young? But there's an interesting thing about this, the Hawkline monster being the chemicals of like, there's this un thing that there's this completely unbridled thing that could change people's perception or just change reality. And there's this other thing that's trying to c- control it, you know, and the thing that kills it is booze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally throwing whiskey into the, the chemicals yeah. is what destroys it. Rodigan yeah. tried to kill himself with booze, but then just did it with a gun. But it, so I don't know if I'm getting too, you know too pretentious here but is there something there as someone who's read more brodigan stuff is that like do you go like oh this is actually of a piece because i obviously i could see brodigan in his poems you know the one about the sewing a turd to a trash can lid and all that yeah (laughs) all the and and in the the one where he kills his friend it still has that but it's it's way less smart assy i guess but it still has that sort of like fixation on like imagination or something that, you know, imagination for good or bad or something to that effect. Am I getting too? No, no, you're right on the nose. Absolutely. I mean, again, I can speak to like the one I really love, which is sombrero fallout, which is three different narratives. Uh, It's um, in in San Francisco. There's a man who is can't sleep because he's thinking about the Japanese, his Japanese girlfriend who just broke up with him. And he's imagining her with like another man and, you know, having, you know, being magically in love and, you know, making love with this guy while he's miserable and she's just asleep on the other side of the city, you know, just completely alone. And it just describes like what's happening in the room while she's sleeping. Uh, But her dream is this like absurd, you know, comedic story about a sombrero that falls from the sky in this small town and what it means to everybody. Then she becomes increasingly, you know, absurd and ridiculous. So I think, you know, he's very good at finding number one profundities within uh, the mundane, like someone just sleeping, he can describe the things that are happening around in the room. He's very good at like, you know, just coming up with like interesting introspects to like nothing happening, you know, in what is essentially an empty room. And he's equally good at, you know, blowing something up into like, you know, ridiculous, fantastic proportions the way he does before the mansion gets destroyed in this. And I think that he's interested in the kind of, uh, I don't know, there's kind of connections between the two, between, you know, having these like small insights and then having these like big, increasingly ridiculous sort of uh, narrative motions happening. So that's happening at the same time in the, in the Hawkline monster. And when the mansion actually does get destroyed by fire in the classic Gothic tradition, and it leaves just a lake, that's sort of what, what you expect. You know, it's not suddenly this strange, surreal thing in the middle of Oregon, where it's this mansion that's on top of these ice caves. Uh, it's, you know, just a lake <laughs> in the middle of nowhere in Oregon. And it suddenly makes sense again. The butler is no longer a dwarf, et cetera. So, and, you know, I think that, you know, it's kind of his, it's, it's his excuse to kind of like inflate this kind of thing and then kind of return it to, 
to the normal way that things are supposed to be and kind of get back into that narrative for the last chapter or two. Uh, yeah, that's definitely very broad again, and I think it's, you know, it's comparable to his other writing for sure. Yeah. Well, the, the one where he shoots his friend, it's been a while, but, um, that, I mean, there are these sort of, it's such a different book from the hawk, the hawkline monster. It almost every, Oh yeah, sure. Day, um, although it, it does have all these sort of things that sometimes work and sometimes feel, uh, it, it, uh after reading the Hawkeye monster and his poetry, which is, you know, half the time is just the most wacky shit. Like the turd. So sewing a turd to a trash can lid, uh, uh, reading that one. I was like, uh, I was moved by it, but I was also like, some of this feels a little maudlin. And then other aspects of it were like, where he went on these absurd tangents that I was like, I don't, it, it was, it was a, it's a strange book where he like, he could have bought a hamburger instead of buying like hollow point bullets that killed his friend. So he's obsessed with hamburgers for the rest of his life. <laughs> he, keeps, he keeps like interviewing people about experience, their experiences with hamburgers. <laughs> like that, that stuff was like, felt like something that'd be a cutaway in the hotline monster. But, um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess what I respect is that he has, from my understanding, this idea of the imagination, but it's not like a, you know, a PBS reading rainbow, like the wonders, the beauty of the imagination. He also is like, it's dangerous too, you know, yeah. it's a, a problem, you know, um, yeah, but I just run wild for sure. As you know, for you, as someone who, who is more familiar, like what, it, what is he saying with the chemicals? I'm not, not to be too analytical or, but why do you think he, what, that the second half of the book, what is, is what, is he making a point? Not to, I'm not trying to boil it down, but I just is. It feels like something there. You're, you you read it, and you're like, he's either making a point or he's being a smartass, and he could be doing both. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I just don't. Just I like tech- I like your reading into it. I think that that's interesting. I think that is completely legit. I think there's all kinds of things you could kind of say it could be about, and the shadow, you know having you know by nature having to follow the the light around and just be part of these things but not cottoning to anything that he's doing uh you know becomes like its own character is interesting i'll also have to give it credit too for uh when the light decides he's going to turn them all into shadows and they're coming when they come as soon as they come down to the basement um for me like it was a really effective tense suspenseful scene it reminded me of uh 40 guns the sam, the, uh, sam fuller movie where they're luring the guy into the uh, the sheriff into the back alley for the ambush, you know, and it's like this big 15 minute build up to, you know, oh my God, they're going to get him. And they got this trap laid for him. And you're just waiting for him, to, waiting for it to be sprung. I, that section felt like that to me. So like that was a really effective part of the book. Well, I also, with the chemicals, I read them as he's making a commentary on the counterculture too, in some way with it, where there's this thing that's been created that's going to improve all of humanity and liberate all of humanity. And there's this light part, which is like a prankish, destructive part. But then the pranks just become more and more destructive and pointless until there's no way to categorize them but evil, right? That the thing that's supposedly going to liberate humanity somehow just becomes, you know, uh, this destructive force that sees itself as being smarter than everybody and prankish and sort of almost childlike and childish in nature and its conception of the world. And then the shadow, the dark half of it, 
that wants to improve humanity, that wants to do stuff for good, gets more and more beaten down until it just doesn't give a shit anymore and just has to follow it around. The idealism is still attached to the prankishness, but it's not actually fucking doing anything. And if you're writing this book in 1974, that's probably your view on what's happened with the counterculture in the past 15 to 20 years, right? Where it's this idea that it's going to liberate and change humanity, but it's got these two halves that are are not necessarily working in conjunction with each other anymore. And the one that had wanted to improve humanity is just slunk down to the bottom of everything and it doesn't even try anymore. It's just beaten out of it. That's that's what I took from it. But I also think you're right that it's making commentary on what is what is a brain, but the, the chemicals in a jar, you know, that are able to interact with the world somehow that that it's um, it's chemicals in the jar, but it's also transcendental. It's also transcending the jar in some way, which is, you know, how consciousness functions. It's both thoroughly more descents and and concrete things, but is also entirely separate from it and floats around and can can float away in some way that that's a good point about the counterculture because like i said he hated hippies yeah. uh, and 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 that, that is one of the repetitious things that he humorous things that if the book came out today would be like all right but the the <laughs> like you said the the uh for the good of all mankind like that he keeps repeating those things like like in the actual prose as to like their their motivation so that actually is uh yeah yeah that's a good that is a good point too uh yeah i mean i don't know i i just wonder if there was a character that richard brodigan relates to in this book i think it's the shadow (laughs) i think he's a guy who is is could not control himself and wanted to and knowing that finding out that he was schizophrenic to me makes more sense makes that make more sense but i don't want to be too psychoanalytical psychoanalytical about it. sort of a light book and then <laughs> then vendors is the evil light yeah yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I agree with you. It. even if it's not schizophrenic it's definitely got that like light half and dark half that a lot of people with mental illness characterize in dealing with it, their right mind and their wrong mind, you know, across the spectrum, obviously, and stuff like bipolar, but also schizophrenia, when you hear people talk about it, is that that there's a split within their own mind where they feel like mind functioning properly and mind not functioning properly. And they feel almost like two distinct things within themselves for a variety. People who suffer from severe anxiety, people who suffer from depression, right? That there's a right mind and then there's the malfunctioning mind that are both trapped in the same thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or people with substance abuse, which he might've had. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is all perfectly legit. I think also it's like, maybe he was imbuing chemicals at the time was like, how about a light and a shadow that pretend (laughs) to be gravy? That could be fun. (laughs) Yeah. You just, it's it's so. No, I give it more credit than that. I think you guys are onto something. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I I just you. The first time you come away with it, you go, okay. I guess he was just fucking around, you know. Um, <laughs> but you know, I've read it numerous times, uh, and I, I, you know, I think he's making some kind of point. He did it, you know. I don't think he just was like, uh, <laughs> the chemicals. I don't, you know. But uh, I just. That I, I mean, I guess that section is so confounding in some way. I they guess just, I want they to... just become the main characters, the Hawkman monster at this point, you know, and we lose the characters we've been enjoying 
traveling with up to that point. And I think that that's definitely like kind of a radical change that you're going to have like a reaction to for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so what do we want to get to the adaptations or anything or we, yeah, yeah let's talk about that yeah. was actually going to be my next question is is the only adaptation i've heard of is the one hal ashby wanted to do that brodigan himself wrote the screenplay for it was like do you have any do you have anecdotes on that one what are your thoughts on on a hal ashby version of this which i've got to say i'm extremely ambivalent about <laughs> uh, yeah um i i don't know um uh the the first so as uh as chris was talking about like mcguane's you know selling stuff to hollywood and everything so brodigan he wanted to do that too and he like he was like i want to make a million dollars a year that was his goal um but uh so yeah he started he uh started writing this the, the this western but uh um sorry i fucking sorry i've been up so late i've lost my train of thought well, don't worry. So we, i'll take it over for a minute um uh, uh, so yeah wait, so he what, writes this oh go ahead oh oh you're talking about the adaptation so the first person they sent it to so he was trying to make money this was the first thing that kind of got optioned and the first person they sent it to was uh uh peter bogdanovich whoa who, who yeah. terrible match of filmmaker <laughs> that's one of those things where you find out that he was like Sergio Leone wanted him to make Ducky Sucker. You're like, what the fuck would a Peter McGonagher <laughs> Ducky Sucker even look like? Um, but he's like, it's a very beautiful novel, but I'm going to have to pass. And then so I think that they were then looking at uh, Arthur Penn uh, and Sam Peck. Arthur Penn, I think they had a connection and they were like, he, he, he could probably do it well. Yeah, um, plausible to me. And then Sam Peckinpah, which I think would be wrong. Um, now I just then, have to think of an adaptation of this story with Penn and Teller starring as the two guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and then, uh, but then eventually he goes to Hal Ashby. No, um, Peckinpah doesn't have any kind of like abstraction in his work like this. Is there any instance of the supernatural in in, in Peckinpah's work? I can't think of a single one. I know that one of the one of the projects that Pegamal really wanted to do, and I can't remember what it was called. It was just some weird kind of surrealist thing where it's like you follow one character and there's a monster. Actually, that sounds pretty familiar. Uh, <laughs> but it's like through like a band. I don't know. It's a abandoned building or abandoned department store or something, and he kills the monster, and at the end, it's him. Yeah, it sounds like the end of the shooting or something. But I know that that was a project that Peg and Paul really wanted to do for a long time. So he could have, you know, he had some weird, you know, weird ideas. But for me, was, was, was Hellman ever considered? Because it seems like they should have been going after Hellman, right? I mean, that seems like it would be his cup of tea. And they've got Nicholson and Harry Dean Stanton. But was was Hellman ever big yeah. enough a director? If you're going after like Bogdanovich and Peck yeah, and Paul, true. Hellman is like yeah, there, there was higher. Yeah. Um, I think there was another um uh, there might have been another one. Um, but uh yeah, so so uh so yeah, then Hal Ashby was very interested in making it. And so Brodigan decided to write the script himself. And he said screenwriting is uh it screenwriting's easy, it's you just leave the writing out. 
<laughs> but uh, so, so he wrote this huge, he took forever and he wrote this huge, like 140 page script, you know, um, I guess with all these weird little asides. So like if an owl hooted, it would like have character name owl and then dialogue hoot. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess he took so long that by the time he sent it to Hal Ashby, he was already working on Bound for Glory. And then um, after he'd done that, Ashby then paid him another $10,000 because he was still interested in doing it. Um, and so they were going to do it with Jack Nicholson and Harry Dean Stanton. I got stories about both those guys. Um, and then uh, uh, I think they decided to go with something bigger, someone bigger than Harry Dean Stanton. And so they went with Dustin Hoffman, um, which sounds terrible. But I guess Hoffman waited way long to sign on. And then everyone else moved to different projects. And then from then on, it was sort of in, you know, this uh, limbo. And I know that at one point, Tim Burton was trying to make it with Jack Nicholson again and Clint Eastwood. Huh. Yeah. And then I, the last thing I heard was like a few years ago, what Yorgos, that guy, the, the most. Yorgos Lanthimos? Yeah. Yeah. Was uh, going to make it. So I don't know. That could be interesting. Yeah, but uh, but uh, yeah, because of you know because of McGuane and and all those Montana guys and 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 uh, all that, he was you know he was really excited about you know uh, turning it into a movie. Uh, he went to go meet with, so he became real close friends with Harry Dean Stanton on the during the production of Ninety Two in the Shade. They became like best friends. And uh, there's a story about uh, Brodigan being hammered. They were doing all these renovations on his house, and Harry Dean Stanton keeps he Brodigan's like, "This is terrible." He takes a hammer with like a hatchet on one side. Everyone is freaking out. He's smashing the whole place up, and Harry Dean Stanton is the one that's cheering him on. And so one of uh, Brodigan's friends, a guy named Ron Little, who had previously shot a dog for biting a kid, so he was kind of a fucking nut too. He comes out with a gun. And uh, he goes, what's the noise? And uh, he goes, go to bed, Richard. And I guess Harry Dean Stanton kept trying to, you know, uh, egg him on. And he's like, get the fuck out of here. So Harry Dean Stanton runs to his, goes to his car and he keeps trying to egg Brodigan on. This guy starts shooting at Brodigan, at Harry Dean Stanton's car. He does a bunch of donuts and flies off. He's like, I wanted to shoot his car, make him walk back into town. So there's a lot of guns and shooting <laughs> and drunken destruction. And so when he, when Brodigan went to go meet with Jack Nicholson, he, he met at Nicholson's house um, uh, about the project, but he was nervous. And so he drank a bunch of bourbon beforehand. And so they had a one-on-one -on -one basketball game, him and Jack Nicholson. Uh, Brodigan won. So they, he like won 50 bucks that they bet. So they start talking about the movie financing and, and Brodigan drunk is like, I don't give a shit about money. I don't give a shit about anything. So he takes out all this money from his wallet, starts tearing it up on Jack Nicholson's coffee table. Um, and everyone's like, okay, well, so then <laughs> after that, Nicholson had other guys coming, other producers, other, another business meeting. So, you know, he shuffled them out, couldn't clean anything up. So he had all this pile of shredded money. So these other producers from other projects, some other projects, like what's that shredded money over there? And Jack Nicholson goes, oh, it's an art piece. You know, everyone's making a contribution. So then <laughs> they take out their money for shredding it. So I guess for years, um, Jack Nicholson just had a pile of shredded money that like producers and everyone would come into like, uh, you know, thinking of some kind of cool art piece. And they're just shredding their money. 
because of a drunken Richard Bradigan. Um, but, uh, and for me, reading the book and imagining the characters as Jack Nicholson and Harry Dean Stanton does improve it because he doesn't, outside of the counting and stuff, he doesn't do a ton of like character work. In fact, he does the opposite. He tells you how similar everyone is. Yeah. Um, so, so keeping that in mind while you read it, for me at least, helped, especially in the second section where everyone's sort of acting out of character. Um, but yeah, so anyway, it, everyone just kind of moved on and the project died and Brodigan shot himself. <laughs> A happy ending for all. A happy ending for <laughs> if you're Nicholas Rogue or Vin Benders, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things that just seems destined not to happen. Although I would, I definitely see a Lanthimos version of it. I'd be really curious what he did with it, you know. And and I was curious too. A hundred and forty page screenplay that's longer than the book. I mean, like you had to have like added extra stuff in there, right? That's you probably interesting owl to read. Didn't she hear? Yeah. Right, yeah. owls, owls, so many owls. Well, yeah, that, and well, that's the other thing too. It's like you this time around. The second section, I I could imagine it better as a movie playing. And other times, I've always been like, "What the fuck would this movie be?" I don't. Yeah, I I, I would love to see it, and 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 I do think that Yorgos, out of all the people that have been circling it, probably would make the most interesting version of it. Um, but it's just like, yeah, just I guess just like the book. What even? What would it even resemble? <laughs> right. Um. But uh, um, oh, you want to hear the Pegapaw story? It's not somehow. It's not as uh, wild. <laughs> but I guess. Yeah. So, so, so I guess there was. Uh, he'd already met Pegapaw because he was in that Montana area. But I don't know how ingratiated he was because from that book, I could only find a couple. I could only really only find this and a, another reference. So. I feel between the two of them being drunk and having guns on them all the time, I feel that <laughs> they would have run into each other more often. But uh, um, I guess they the trick to... probably would have remembered it. That's the thing. <laughs> also, yeah, don't guys who are drunk and have a lot of guns run into each other once? Isn't that how that plays out normally? <laughs> so so I guess they were staying at the ho same hotel. Peckinball was renting a suite. I guess that's where he lived. And uh, so Brodigan was already a fan of his and I think this was around the time he was working on Hawkline Monster. So he was obviously a big fan of Ride the High Country and the Wild Bunch and that stuff. And so um, Peckinpah, I think, went to Brodigan's room. Brodigan knew he liked brandy, so he had a bunch of brandy there for him. And Peckinpah sees Brodigan's 44 Magnum on the counter, and he goes, what do you got that for? And he goes, oh, protection. He goes, I know what you're talking about. So Peckinpah goes to his room, gets a 38. So the two of them get hammered. And then they look out the window and see some stray cats. And they start shooting at stray, stray cats from this hotel. <laughs> and uh, the hotel owner comes out and, he's, and, like, you know, reads the riot act to Peckinpah, who had to live there. And he's like, we'll behave ourselves. So I guess they stopped shooting at cats from then on. <laughs> so so the point is, if you were a 70s director and you got drunk with Richard Brodigan, just make sure you also had a gun. <laughs> <laughs> or at least some stray cats. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a whole Francis Ford Coppola story where Francis Ford Coppola might have been sleeping with his Japanese girlfriend. Um, I guess both of them had dated, what's her name? Matheson, the one that wrote E.T.? Oh, Melissa really? Matheson? 
Yeah. So, so Brodigan's Japanese girlfriend, one of his many or wives, I can't remember her name. I apologize. But uh, I guess Coppola had the hots for her and he was there and he was like uh, in front of his wife and everyone, he goes, uh, Richard Brodigan like to tie you up. And she was shocked because Brodigan, that was, I guess, his fetish. He loved to, to tie people up. He was like, well, what? He goes, oh, yeah, my uh, one of my old girlfriends, uh, Matt, what's her first name? Melissa. Melissa. Okay, I keep wanting to say Melinda. He goes, oh, yeah, she used to date Brogan. He always, you know, used to always tie her up. This is in front of Coppola's wife. <laughs> so I guess he was pretty open. Um, uh, but I, I think he had a, the hots for Brodigan's girlfriend. I don't know if they had a fling, but Brodigan was scared about it. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, Coppola ended it with, he makes terrible spaghetti. So. <laughs> uh, incredible. An anecdote in which Coppola comes across as an ass. I've never yeah, heard yeah, one of the yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Luckily, Brodigan wasn't there that time, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, did, did like Copa have it? It was going to turn the course of history for the better if he had been. Maybe, yeah, that might be true. That might be true. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have Rainmaker or Jack if everything had gone according to plans. Oh, well, when you say it that way, then it's a good thing he wasn't there, right? <laughs> yeah, was Coppola open around with his wife? I don't know. What are these three playmates you brought in to shoot Apocalypse Now? What are they here for? Very important yeah. scene with the playmates in the Vietnam. Yeah, and also uh, we're in trouble. Can you mortgage your parents' house <laughs> <laughs> with a girlfriend with a girlfriend on his lap? Um, so, David, the, the Hawkline yeah. monster. Any last kind of thoughts on the book itself before we dive into our dessert pairings? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a quick read. It's the 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 prose is is it, you could get through it very easily. It's super funny. Um, I think the, the, the first half of it, I still regard it, uh, very highly amongst Westerns. I think it has a completely fascinating point of view. And the thing is too, like the whole, he even puts that subtitle, a Gothic Western, which sort of wasn't really a thing at the time. You're right. I sent, I yeah. sent, uh, uh, Funderburg, one of the, one of the, uh, important roles in the creation of the Gothic Western subgenre, which was the creation of not scary farm. Uh, but the, but I think that what he was doing with that, the Gothic Western or whatever, I don't, I honestly don't, outside of just like, just base level, I don't look at the Hawkline monster as a Gothic Western, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think that later someone like, like something like Blood Meridian is a truly Gothic Western with, you know, the whole thing is infused with the Western and the Gothic in every passage, you know? Um, and uh and uh i guess my disappointment is always because i feel that there's there that aspect is in those first chapters and i feel that he could have done something more or bigger if he if he developed it that way but i think what we got is still great i still love it and so yeah the hawkline monster still great so everyone should check it out one of the funniest books i've ever read it's amazing because, you know, knowing your guys' position and Chris telling me before we started that, you know, he agreed that the second half was inferior to the first. I thought like I was going to be the big defender of that section, but I think you guys have made me like it more from talking about <laughs> it. That was unexpected. Yeah, I still like it. It's still it's still very funny. But but like I said, it, it that section works 
really almost only on that level for me, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, whereas the first section works on multiple levels. The first section, you like imagine a awesome 400 page novel. That's that first section. You know what I mean? When I read it, yeah. I think of this other book that it's not. That's so exciting to imagine that book. You know what I mean? And it's not that I want to throw the second half in the trash. There's just like, it's exactly what you're saying. He could have expanded it into something bigger and and made that you know he could have he could have made that into the entire thing and that would have been you know that would have been like in the running for one of my favorite novels if there if that was a big you know 350 page thing that's exactly like that first section you know so david i agree i agree <laughs> <laughs> so david what uh, what do you think people should then uh, turn to after they've set down the Hawkline monster, what should, what next piece of art should they engage with? Uh, I don't know. What, I don't know what they should turn to. What I would say is, if you if if anyone is out there lamenting about it not ever getting made or whatever, uh, I'd pair it with the Missouri Breaks. Uh, really? <laughs> not because look at there are parts. There are huge parts of the Missouri breaks that I love. Uh, Marlon Brando is the problem. John Williams score is the problem. Um, uh, but I like the Missouri breaks. I like the dynamic between Jack Nicholson and Harry Dean Stanton. Um, and I, and so, and no, and you know, since it was written by Thomas McGuane, who was, you know, one of, uh, you know, so it just kind of has that thing to where it's like, one, it could potentially enhance the Hawkline monster of just that the Harry Dean Stanton Jack Nicholson dynamic. I mean, if you went you saw, you know, riding the whirlwind or something else too. But at that one, I think that that friendship could inform it. But also, like, uh, don't lament that it was never made because it might have become the Missouri Breaks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. John and I are big Missouri Breaks defenders. I yeah. remember in college being surprised to meet someone else who who would was willing to defend the missouri breaks oh this guy this this guy plays with my this guy plays with my heart on social media over the missouri breaks (laughs) we've discussed it before i i I like missouri breaks uh but there are big sections that are terrible and the john i think the john williams i think right john williams did the score of that one right Uh, yes yes yeah and I think that his score is almost as bad as Brando in that because it's this jangly sort of like it's a Western and we're having fun. It's a funny one. And it's like harmonica music and stuff. It's just, <laughs> you don't underscore the humor that way, I don't think so. Uh, but uh, yeah, the Missouri breaks. And there's a and there's a published screenplay by McGuane, which, you know, might be interesting for people to check out. Doesn't that have movie, all the isms. The movie took on. Well, no, I should say. The M. Night uh, Shyamalan movie, old, I think I liked more than I would have because of its Missouri Breaks shout out in it. Do you, did you see that one? I did not see it. What What is the Missouri Breaks shout out in that one? So in the movie, the characters are uh, growing older rapidly is kind of the setup of the film. And so one of them is like going into like, you know, uh, like Alzheimer's or, or having a you know, senility. And uh, so he just starts saying, what? <sighs> What was that movie with Marlon? What was that Western movie with Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson? What was what was the title? What was it called? And he's getting like increasingly angry. And apparently M. Knight's father, when he 
experienced that. That's exactly what he said to him. He couldn't remember the name of the Missouri breaks. So he put it into the film. We've all had, we've all had drunken nights where we can't remember the name of Missouri breaks. <laughs> <laughs> we've all been there. It's like one of those classic things that happens to everyone at one point. Absolutely. Um, uh, Chris, you want me to go next? Yeah, or? No, I, cause mine is brain damaged. So let me get mine out of the way. Mine is a movie <laughs> as well. And it's about uh, a astronaut who um, crash lands on a planet that's populated entirely in an old Western town theme, but it's all women. I'm talking about 1996's softcore classic, Petticoat Planet, which I think has some of the the same Hawkline monster, like, is this a Western? Is this a sci-fi? What are we doing here? Qualities of that script of uh, of definitely wheel spinning and just, you know, something if you want to see like if you feeling critical of the second half of hawkline monster go watch an actual piece of garbage and stop complaining <laughs> i like that both of your dessert picks are hey there's something bad <laughs> well, that is not that. It has its charms no question like the sheriff is in lingerie and stuff it's like naked sexy lady planet that he crashes. I... I like the Missouri Breaks. I like it. I would consider it one of the better 70s Westerns, honestly. But its flaws are so huge. So that's all. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I, respect, like I absolutely respect your opinion of Western it movies more than problem. more than anyone else. So I that's totally fine. That's totally fair as far as I'm concerned. I, I, yes, there, there are flaws in that movie. No <laughs> question about it. John, what's your dessert pairing? Uh, I got to go with Dead Man, right? Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man, which uh, I'll just uh, throw this anecdote out there. I worked at Blockbuster Video when I was in high school and somebody brought the video back and said he wanted to refund. And I said, oh, the tape didn't work. What's the problem? He's like, it's in black and white. <laughs> and so we had to give him a refund because he didn't want to watch a black and white movie, which was advertised all over the box, by the way. He claimed it wasn't. Obviously, it was. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, I think obviously there's some, uh, you know, uh, spiritual, surreal touches in this uh, film that, that Mr. Jarmish made. I uh, know that he was heavily influenced by the um, Rudy Wurlitzer unproduced screenplay Zebulon, which ended up becoming a novel called The, the Drop Edge of Yonder. And Rudy Wurlitzer seems of a of a mindset, I think, with Brodigan in terms of how to approach a Western. Of course, he wrote uh, Billy and the Kid, uh, Pack here for, uh, for Peck and Pond definitely had kind of like that interest in the kind of more spiritual and mythical kind of qualities of a Western. But, uh, you know, Dead Man has um, them shooting Buffalo from the train really reminds me of the sheep shooters. We didn't get into that moment, but uh, the part in Hawkland Monster where they come to the aftermath of the sheep slaughter and the wind carries the smell away. And there's that great line. They could be, they could watch death while not having to be intimate with it, you know, kind of reminded me of that. Um, the prominent fucking, the uh, Gibby Hayes Payne's <laughs> blowjob, obviously, is something that they share. Uh, the three men who were hired to hunt down Johnny Depp, Lance Henriksen, Michael Wincott, and Eugene Bird are very uh, much like the main heroes in this, uh, with their kind of bickering and their kind of more modern sort of dialogue. Um, so there's even like a, a gap in the cultural appreciation between William Blake and Nobody, the Gary Farmer and the Johnny Depp characters. That kind of reminds me of when Greer and Cameron are uh in the in the mansion and don't know what supernatural means you know or 
or what yeah. these other things are, which the Hawkline women, you know, feel embarrassed that they don't know about it. So anyway, so th- there definitely seems to be kind of a humor and an appreciation of the surreal and the spiritual, I think, that both of these uh, works have in common. So why not sit down and watch watch Dead Man? Also a movie that's not flawless, you know, but I still love it. Um, still, still yeah. a good one. Yeah, and I guess we keep underlining this point the whole fucking episode. <laughs> but, that's, but that's a good choice because in the because because once again it is doing something and i got my issues with dead man but uh it's doing something that is infused it, it's it it is dead man is sort of what you when you're reading the hotline monster what you want the whole thing to be you want a sort of a picturesque sort of you're meeting uh you're not picturesque picturesque uh you're meeting all these weird characters you know what i mean and uh uh uh, in the west uh, and that's the first half of the book it has that sort of dead man structure here's this funny guy here's this for you know absolutely and uh you know yeah Uh, and i think that yeah if 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 the hawkeye monster was more like dead man i think it would be a lot better i i i think that yeah whatever you can see we can see like a printed version of Dead Man almost being like written in this same style, you know. Yeah. Uh, even the yeah, uh, yeah. kind of slow, you know, uh, path of uh, William Blake to death at the end. It's kind of like really prolonged and kind of just stretches on and on. Almost feels like the kind of long stretch in the mansion at the end of this book. They have kind of a similar sort of tone. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I didn't mention to uh, his Bradigan's prose uh, enough. Um, uh, in terms of uh, how sometimes he'll hit you with just like brilliant imagery and you're like, wow. And other times it's like, you know, he will just outright say like, the hills look like, he just, it's not even like uh, some kind of like Cormac McCarthy, like simile or whatever. Or uh, It's just like, it, the hills look like dead bodies or it's just, or it looked very gothic over there or it looked gloomy. <laughs> like it's just... <laughs> Where it's like he's like I'm not even going to bother <laughs> with all this <laughs> atmospheric descriptive shit. It's like it looks gothic, right? <laughs> uh, which is which is part of that the appeal of it for yeah, me. Yeah, such is its charm, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because you kind of feel like you not that he did it this way, but you kind of feel him as typewriter, like trying to come up with some kind of description of these old you know hills or whatever, and then it's just like oh. Uh, it, it just looked gloomy and dark and looked like death. <laughs> it's like, okay, that works too. <laughs> <laughs> On the lazy days, just couldn't be arsed. I get it. David, thank you so much for doing this, man. This has been a huge pleasure talking to you. What, for uh, sure. What's your next big uh, thread target? Are you going to, now that you've eviscerated Sam Elliott and others with your binding <laughs> threads, what's, the next, bit, what's the next big that research was, subject? That, that was my defense of Sam Elliott. <laughs> <laughs> um what is, what is next um i'm gonna be uh i think i'm supposed to go on uh james hancock's youtube thing to talk about the killers of the flower moon oh, uh, awesome. I don't know if you heard about that i'll have to hit him up after this and then i'm gonna be going on uh arminio's what's the podcast the religious i'm gonna be yeah. on a podcast i can't remember the name cut this part out <laughs> <laughs> the one with the Scott. religious one the religious the re- film re- yeah, etch- echelon the spirit, yeah, the spiritual thing. Yeah. So I'll be talking about Shane. Shane as a Christ figure. On no, that. nice. Very nice. 
and then uh um yeah and then i don't know on twitter just keep keep checking it i think i'm gonna be doing i, I want to do i don't know if i'll do it on twitter or i'll do it uh as a podcast i do want to attack make my big assault on butch casting the sundance kid oh no which is a movie i like but i want to but i want to uh i want to eviscerate it and then uh <laughs> and then i think i'm gonna at some point mount my big defense which i my big defense of uh chris christopherson's casting and pat garrett and Billy the kid <laughs> <laughs> even though i agree he's wrong for the part but oh that's gonna be great yeah so uh that's what I have on the horizon. I might not do any of it. I lose interest in things very quickly. <laughs> As like half of my threads sometimes just peter off. <laughs> so well, someday uh, you'll finish the Unforgiven thread. I know. I know you, you will. Or it's legitimately <laughs> the best follow on Twitter. There's there's very few people I like following, and it's uh, it's legitimately fantastic. When those things take off, they're they're always so good and so interesting and shit i don't know anything about and and just you know you know that huge threat on on unforgiven is one of the like the most incredible things you'll just come across on there you know it really in my mind justifies that format in a lot of ways so and always so obviously when you appear on podcasts it's in incredible breadth of knowledge and detail and insight and so we're thrilled to finally have you on here talking about uh talking about something yeah, hey, well, I appreciate I appreciate the invite. I've been uh, uh, obviously I'm a huge fan of you, you you guys, and and I'm a big fan of this podcast. Yeah, I'll usually listen to it when you're talking about something I have some familiarity with. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like five percent of the time, because we just talk about pretty, shit. pretty much <laughs> no consideration for the audience. I was actually saying to John the other day. Can you believe how much better our Indiana Jones podcast did than our Surviving Desire? And he was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, but it did like 10 times better. He's like, yeah, what What the fuck? What do you think, Chris? It's like, well, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, well, it's like James Hancock keeps trying to get me to go talk about like Rio Bravo or, you know, yeah. and it's like. Uh, do I have anything to say that anyone hasn't said about that? Can we talk about can we talk about Law and Order from 1932? <laughs> That's the stuff I'd rather always rather do. It's just well, not even rather do. Just like same thing where it's like what what is there even to say about some of these movies? People are always like you should do more Kurosawa stuff. It's like what are we going to say about Seven Samurai? Like like honestly, what is there to say about about Ran or something that hasn't been you know, not even that hasn't been said that like, we're going to have this magic insight. Did you know it's based on Shakespeare? Really? True. True that's story. That's, I'm not familiar with you. That? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are they allowed to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, that. that's how I am too. It's like, a, if I am going to talk about a big topic, like the searchers or something, then yeah, I either have to have a unique perspective, and yeah. sometimes I do because of history and all that, or um, or it has to be the most exhaustive <laughs> thing on it, which I, which I would rather not do. But that's also it's like what it's like. I know I have to find a unique unique angle, and it's like, do I do I need to do I want to read every fucking Howard Hawks bio to yeah 
<laughs> to get an angle on real Bravo. Exactly. Which, which you would definitely. Yes, which I would. I'm just not looking fucking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, you just can't do that every month. You, you guys think I have this knowledge? This is it's so much research. It's why I abandoned threads. I'm like, ugh, I just it's too much. Um, even incomplete, they are phenomenal. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. This is a book. I, I, the three of us, I have no Richard Brodigan familiarity. Like I said, just some of the poems and. uh and so this was super fun. This was just a great opportunity for me to get into this and read something that was not on my radar in any meaningful way. Yeah, well, that, yeah, I, I I had a great time. I'm glad we, you know, started with maybe a topic that I'm not exhaustively <laughs> uh, embedded in. So. Exhausted by talking about. Uh, what was that? Exhaustively exhausted by talking about. You're yeah, not- yeah, everyone's exhausted. If you've ever listened to that One Eye Jack's uh, Wrong Reel episode, I, I sometimes I'll re-listen to stuff because I'm a, a maniac. And uh, I think the last hour of that is James Hancock trying to stop the episode and me continues. <laughs> what about this fact? What about this fact? <laughs> but that, so, so it was a good. That it's good that we started on something that I don't have a ton of knowledge on. <laughs> but uh, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Excellent. Thank you, sir. <laughs>